0: You turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Ephesians 1 on page 947. As you turn there, I love what David did last Sunday. He, He waited and waited. He's a patient man for you to say amen when you turn to Ephesians 1. Are you there yet, David? You know where Ephesians is? You got it? All right, um, that's his style, I, I, and I'm, I'm always telling you what page it's on, but together our longing is for you to read the Word of God, hear a sermon, and discern whether it is rooted in the Word of God, and then have that same Bible that you opened during this slot in the service at home when you read Scripture, when you pray it through, uh, because as we exalt Jesus from the pulpit... Our secondary goal is to equip you to see the treasures that are available to you. Um, And just know that I always put the Scripture passages that I read, uh, not only the text but um, quotes that I'll I'll, 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 uh, read throughout the sermon, I always put them on the screen, but they should never replace the Bible that I'd love for you to be bringing to church on Sunday mornings. They're for uh, folks who are visiting, who might not have a Bible, who might not uh, be able to navigate to Ephesians, even, you know, uh, with page numbers, but flip around and follow a a preacher. They're up there so you can follow mentally with me. If you're a regular, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, bring your Bible. That's David's heart in uh, lightheartedly asking you for an amen. That's my heart in uh, urging you to do this every now and then. Well, back in October... It seems a world away, a galaxy far, far away. Back in October, we started this sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we got through seven messages by Thanksgiving weekend, at which point we had to put it on the shelf because of Advent... And then our typical January Grace Stories mini-series, and then this inserted special series when we would have gotten back to Ephesians uh, that I called Spiritual Preparation for Moving to get us ready mentally and spiritually to um, steward this resource that God has granted to us uh, here at Grace Redeemer Church. And then Easter season over two Sundays, and finally, here we are. I've been waiting for this day since November not because it's a special day, not because this text has any more truth than any other text, but because walking through a book of the Bible is GRC's bread and butter. This approach that is called expository preaching um, enables us to experience the full breadth of God's truth in His Word Because if I pick and choose my way through the Bible, I come up with clever things, clever ideas, and then go searching for biblical truth to support my clever ideas for five ways you can become a better person, not only do we risk a man-centered wisdom, but we risk missing out on what God has to say to us. They're they're both uh, two sides of the same coin, right? We will always have important reasons to address hot-button topics or current events that uh, require us to dig into Scripture and and figure out how do we respond, how do we engage with the culture around us. There will always be those important topical series, but coming back to um, expository preaching is our anchor point as we walk through a book of the Bible uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, week by week. It's been such a long time, and uh, a number of you have joined us uh, here at GRC since the fall. So, what I'd like to do is spend this morning attempting the impossible, which is to summarize chapter 1, verses 1 through 16 that took us seven sermons in the fall. I'm, I'm going to try to attempt to summarize that all in one Sunday to get us up to speed for the spring uh, that lie ahead. Okay? I, I would love for every one of you to go to grace com and download or stream those seven messages. I I kind of figure that's not going to happen. Um, Surprise me, shock me by telling me you did. But um, short of that, uh, let me try this summary. But first, listen carefully. These are God's words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the praise of His glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're drinking from a fire hose, not because of 16 verses uh, alone, but because... These verses are so chock-full of gospel, they are so spiritually nutrient-dense, and we ask together that Your Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired Paul to write this letter, share these thoughts, that that same Spirit would open our eyes that we might see Your glory. We might glimpse your plan of salvation and revel in it and have no other natural response but to bow our knees before you, the King of all kings. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, your Son. Amen. First, a a quick outline to help us um, get the big picture. The the first half of this letter, chapters 1 through 3, lay out what we'll call position in Christ. They give us a sense of identity. This is who you are, sinners rescued by the Savior. And that's why the first graphic, as you see here, is um, focused on the root system, shaped in the, um, arranged in the shape of a cross, because as the subtitle points out from the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. We're looking at foundation, in chapters 1 through 3. This is who you are. But then chapters 4 through 6, now live in light of who you are. Act out that identity in practice in Christ, position in Christ, practice in Christ, chapters 4 through 6. And in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to focus on um, the tree. We're going to see how uh, a plant, a tree with healthy roots in Christ naturally produces fruit, naturally acts out this identity that has Jesus as its foundation. Four words are going to be our outline to walk us through this summary. Background, blessing, position, Trinity. Background, real briefly. Ephesus was an incredibly strategic city, a global city back then, because it uh, was located at the crossroads or on, on the main route from Asia to Europe. And it was a cosmopolitan blend of all kinds of nationalities and cultures and religions, a global city with pluralism, people claiming all kinds of truth for themselves. And in the midst of that kind of context, it was incredibly challenging to proclaim that Jesus alone is Lord, not Caesar, because this is the Roman Empire, not the Greek goddess Artemis, also known as Diana, whose temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. No, instead, Jesus and him alone. God's truth in the Scriptures over and above any other claim to truth. Paul planted the church in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, uh, dating to around the mid-50s A.D., and he spent more time in Ephesus than in any other location during his entire ministry. Years later, while waiting in a Roman prison on death row... Paul would write this letter to the Ephesians. That's background. Second word is blessing. After a brief intro, verses 1 and 2, Paul lets loose with this epic single run-on sentence, 202 straight words in the language in which the New Testament was written, Greek. He can't help but overflow because he's beginning to talk about the treasures of the gospel, and he's got a lot to say all at once. He starts with praise praise, To the Father, verse 3, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and we noted back in the fall, that's a pretty strong statement, to say He has given us every spiritual blessing. Not one of them is missing. There's not a part that needs to be completed to make it a whole. Every spiritual blessing, and so many of us want to say, so where are those blessings? There's plenty of parts missing in my life. My life is not the way it's supposed to be. My life is not the way I had planned it out to be, expected it to be. Why do I feel stressed instead of blessed? And so often in your frustrated search for answers, you keep God at a distance. Reluctantly reluctantly present in church on a Sunday morning, or you have half-hearted devotion to God, and you will return to this passionate love relationship of faith with God on uh, when He gets His act together and starts to act out your perfect plan for your life according to your wisdom. If any of that at all describes your spiritual life, I'd pose this question to you from author and pastor John Piper, who aims his arrow at our hearts. A critical question for our generation, for any and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be happy with that kind of heaven, lacking nothing except for Jesus? Don't be too quick to give a no answer. Don't be too hasty to dismiss that as an unspiritual idea that has no place in church because your daydreams, your goals, your priorities of spending your time and money Day after day, week after week, probably suggest more yes than no. And if there's any measure of yes, then it makes perfect sense that you would wonder where every spiritual blessing in Christ is located. It makes perfect sense that that you'd say, at least here and there, on and off, I don't get it. Where is this blessing? And if that picture of a heaven with no Jesus appeals to you in any way, if it doesn't strike you as dark and empty and straight out of the pit of hell, then it's easy to predict spiritual unhealth like a critical spirit or lack of joy or ingratitude or prayerlessness, spiritual apathy, all because you're looking in the wrong place, you're aiming in the wrong direction, to see what every spiritual blessing in Christ actually involves. What direction do you look in? Paul tells us in verse 3, every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly realms. Now, he doesn't mean that the follower of Jesus can only expect blessing from the Father somewhere else um, than this earth and some other time than this lifetime. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, When When he says in the heavenly realms, he is talking about the spiritual dimension of life and and assuming that you understand that the spiritual dimension of life is just as real as the physical and material dimension of life, the unseen, not only the seen. So if you're only trained habitually to think in earthly terms, you will constantly wonder, hey, God, where is my blessing? Because I don't see it. I can't withdraw it from the ATM. I can't feel it in my aching, chronically affected body. But if you are thinking heavenly with spiritual eyes, recognizing the spiritual dimension of life, you'll begin to see that as you follow Jesus, as you continue to put your trust in Him. God has already solved your greatest problem of slavery to sin that leads to spiritual and eternal death. He has already begun to apply resurrection power to make you new. No, it won't be complete until the last day, but it's at work now, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Easter power. What's the key? He says every spiritual blessing is in Christ. That's the third word. Back to position. Um, remember, I said chapters one through three sh- uh, show us position in Christ. This is who you are, it's a statement of identity. But this is the most important part of what I mean by position. And let me explain how it is absolutely foundational to everything about the Christian faith. One of Paul's favorite phrases that he uses more in Ephesians than in any other New Testament writing is in Christ, it's a statement of identity. Here's one picture I painted back in October to illustrate this. Suppose you're hosting Thanksgiving dinner for your family, and everyone's crowded around the kitchen, as always, waiting for that turkey to come out of the oven, and the front door opens, and this guy just walks right into your kitchen. He doesn't belong. The music stops. You keep sharpening that carving knife just in case. You hardly even want to ask him, who are you? Because nobody just shows up on Thanksgiving. Nobody's working. Nobody's visiting. He's an outsider. His, his position is outsider because he doesn't belong. No offense to you, guy, but you're in the wrong house. But same scenario. Suppose the front door opens, but instead of a strange man, in walks your daughter who is away at college, who wasn't supposed to be home because she had too much to do, too many exams to study for, but she's here. And what's the reaction? It's exactly the opposite. There's hugging and crying and laughing. Uh, The mood suddenly lifts even higher than it was as family were gathered around the kitchen um, um, area. And instinctively, someone just grabs another plate out of the cupboard and another chair gets squeezed in between the other chairs. Why? Because her position in the family, in relationship, is daughter, is sister, is cousin. She belongs. She's an insider. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, who you are is defined by this simple statement. It's not described like one among many adjectives. It's defined by the simple statement I am in Christ. That's the sermon right there from Ephesians chapter 1. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, the statement that essentially defines who you are is if you say, I am in Christ. Not, I believe in God. Not I read the Bible regularly, not I try to be a kind and generous person in every context of life. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with any of those statements, but they don't define, none of them, or even all three of them together, do not define the identity of a follower of Jesus called child, son or daughter. But this does four words. I am in Christ. And then your identity further becomes not just son or daughter, but your position in Christ becomes declared righteous, set free, forgiven, heir of the treasures of heaven, not because of anything you've done, but only through faith in everything Jesus has done. Uh, Every now and then I I make it to Costco with Cedar. I love going to Costco. Who doesn't? And um, I have to go with her because she has the membership card in the family. And I always have this urge, sometimes I don't say it, but I always have this urge at the door to tell the guy who's checking badges, I'm with her. (laughs) Because clearly without a badge, you can't get in. And if you're profiling couples, I don't typically look like her husband. Uh, And so, you know, but I go with her because I'm her husband, and I get access to Costco. I'm united to her. I I enter on her coattails. There's a simple dynamic there that we get, right? Um, The member can bring visitors, guests. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the statement, I am in Christ, means, to put it another way, you are united to Christ. You are one with Him, which means in the language of Paul and Colossians chapter 3, you've already been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, and you receive all the benefits that Jesus deserves because of His perfect life of obedience, His perfect righteousness, His lack of any hint of sin. And so this is the essence of being in Christ or united to Christ. What happened to Jesus happens to the Christian. He died in payment of sin. It's as if you had died with him. He rose from the dead in conquering sin and death. It's as if, because you're united to him by faith, it's as if you've already been raised. Paul says, you have been raised. That's past tense. Because it's as good as done. Resurrection power is at work in you because you're in Christ. If you're in Christ then the Father sees you and relates to you as he sees and relates to the Son. And because the Son's perfect, how does the Father relate to him? With perfect acceptance, with absolute delight, with limitless belonging and intimacy in relationship. All despite the believer's sin because it's been paid for on the cross of Christ. Last word, Trinity. Paul praises the Father for every spiritual blessing in Christ, and then he proceeds to lay out three parts of that blessing that uh, we treated in four or five weeks. First, chosen for adoption by the Father, and then redeemed for unity by the Son, and then sealed for an inheritance by the Spirit. This, this is the crazy part of the sermon, to try to treat these three in a, in a few minutes, okay? But again, the messages are there at graceredeemer.com. Number one, Paul's epic... Sentence from verses 3 through 14 it basically summarizes God's entire plan of salvation, and it begins with this doctrine. No one would ever believe in Jesus if it were not for the Father taking the initiative to grant the gift of faith. And that's the doctrine of election, which uh, is all over this passage, starting in verse 4. He chose us in Him, verse 5, in love He predestined us for adoption. And then a double dipper in verse 11, in Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to His plan. We might not like it, but it's eminently biblical. And it's not just the Apostle Paul who comes up with this kind of thinking. It's Jesus laying it out in crystal clear fashion in John chapter 6. It's Uh, Luke, the gospel writer, who also wrote the book of Acts, describing the plan of God, the work of God in the church in Acts chapter 13. And then it's Paul again writing to the Romans um, in Romans chapter 8. Laying it all out, chosen for adoption by the Father. The second element of every spiritual blessing is that we've been redeemed for unity by the Son. And we see that in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, back in the fall, I, I shared this phrase, I, I, I used this phrase, I paid a king's ransom for that. And it's a, an idiom, it, it's, it's it, maybe not an idiom, but it's a, it's a um, fancy way of saying I paid a whole lot of money for that, that iPhone, a whole lot of money. It's the kind of loot that would be required to free a king who is being held hostage, who's in captivity. That's not a small ransom payment, is it? But here's so that ransom idea is behind the words chosen in verse 7. But here's the really dramatic twists behind verse 7 that lies at the heart of the gospel, it lies at the root of Christianity. Because it's not the king who's in bondage who needs to be ransomed out. It's his people who are rebellious servants who have committed treason against the king. And yet, not only is the ransom paid by the king for his undeserving subjects, but the ransom price is the very life of the king himself. And why does he have to lay down his life? Because what he's freeing us from in terms of spiritual captivity isn't just a prison cell. Pay enough money, spring the guy out. What he's freeing us from is the sentence of death that our sin deserves. And therefore, his substitute death is laid down in payment. I asked this question in the fall, I'll ask it again freshly. Are you here on Sunday morning because of family obligation? because the music's really good, because um, your children need it, because of the social aspect, because you're, you're very curious about this new building that you heard that, that uh, is um, renovated in Glen Rock. Are you here for any of those reasons, some of which are not horrible, but, but is that the motivation that drags you out of bed and, and brings you to a worship service, or do you engage in worship with mind, body, heart, and soul? Do you passionately open your mouth in singing praises to the king because he deserves your praise? He he deserves so much more than you could ever offer him. Do you do that because you know that without Christ you would be under condemnation for your sin, but with Christ, in Christ, you are free and forgiven. Shouldn't that constantly be our motivation for not only coming, but forgiving of ourselves and our attention and our voices in, in the actions of our body because Jesus is worthy? The last element of every spiritual blessing is sealed for inheritance by the Spirit. Verse 11 sets the stage. It says, In Him we were also chosen, but it can also be translated. Um, in two different ways. In Him, we were made an inheritance or we have obtained an inheritance. At face value, they seem different. But the first says that in Christ, we are God's possession, His treasure. We belong to Him. He delights in us. He marvels at us. And the second says that in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. We have everything that our hearts truly long for, were designed by God the Creator to be satisfied with every craving, every dream promised and then satisfied through faith in Jesus who reconciled us back to the Father. So how does this get worked out in your life? It starts very simply with faith. Verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need more. You can be filled up with the Holy Spirit, which means His power permeates every part of your being more so than it does now, but, but you don't get more of a person, the third person of the Trinity. You either have Him or you don't, and if you're in Christ, the Spirit is within you. And His job is not to draw attention to himself, but to exalt Jesus and to press home in your soul to the depths of your being that this truth of Jesus, the risen King, is the truest of all truths. And then to work in your life to to shape in you Christ-likeness so that you would enjoy a childlike trust and freedom to rest in the promises of your heavenly Father. All of this, this epic run-on sentence, verses 3 through 14, this summary of salvation, all of it points to the fullness of divine promise. And what's the natural thing we think of when someone has made a promise? Have they kept it? Does God deliver on His promises in the reality of the Ephesian church here? And verse 15 begins to give us the answer. Paul notes, for this reason, what he just talked about in his epic run-on sentence, he takes a breath. For this reason, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I have not stopped remembering you in my prayers. Why? Because he's beginning to see that they have been chosen for adoption by the Father, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and sealed for an inheritance by the Spirit. Promise is becoming reality. God is producing fruit in a church that is rooted in Jesus and His plan is coming to fruition. We have the great privilege, Grace Redeemer Church, this spring of continuing to walk through this letter to see God's promise become reality not only in the lives of the Ephesians from 2,000 years ago but in our midst as a biblical community trusting that this living Word pointing to eternal truths is still at work powerful to save. Let's pray. Lord God, unite our hearts to Jesus. Show us the Savior, risen and glorious, triumphant over death, and enable us to see that everything that we need, everything that we long for is found in Christ.